morning. My name's Peter, and uh, I'll be reading the Bible uh, passage this morning from Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 29. And it's one of these passages that you get to the end of and you go, come again. So thankfully we've got Jonathan that uh, will be able to explain it and expound it to us, and it's a great privilege uh, to be able to hear him uh, this morning. So if you'd like to read along with me, uh, verses 6 to 29 of chapter 2 of Romans. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be de declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, Will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. How did you go? Right? Okay, over to you, Jonathan. 
Thank you, Peter, for that reading. Uh, and thank you, Emily, for including that video. It did a lot of heavy lifting for me um, and said it a lot better than I could. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, welcome to Windsor District Baptist Church. My name is Jonathan Hoffman, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And uh, we're in the middle of a series through the book of Romans, which uh, for many people consider to be Paul's clearest articulation of what the gospel is. Uh, as we come to the message this morning, uh, you need to keep in mind that Romans is written to a very diverse community. People of all different backgrounds and uh, ethnicities, people of different religious uh, affiliations, um, they've all come to hear about this Jesus and they are being formed into a transformed community, a new type of community. And that transformation is the same kind of transformation that we expect God to do in this place. And so it's important for us to look at how this actually works. And Romans is giving us a great opportunity to see that. Uh, the title of the message this morning is A Shared Expectation. Now, we've themed the first part of, of Romans here as uh, family traits. Paul talks in, in the very beginning of his letter about how this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ has gone out into the world and it is inviting, calling people into a family of God. It's calling Gentiles and Jews into this family of God. And I don't know about your family of origin, but most families have certain expectations of if you are at my house on a Saturday morning, you better be ready to work because in our house, that's when the jobs are done. Saturday morning jobs, it's not everyone's favorite, but that's the expectation. Uh, you probably have expectations in your family of, of what that was like. Well, in God's family, there is, there's no difference here. There's a set of expectations that he imparts to his people. We're going to look at that this morning. The text is Romans 2, chapter, six, uh, chapter 2, verse 6 to 29. I encourage you, grab a Bible. If you don't have one, put your hand up. Lionel will bring them around for you. Otherwise, if you have a smartphone on you, uh, you can open your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible app on your smartphone, I encourage you to download one. Uh, there's many good ones. I use the Version app myself, uh, but there's a lot of good ones. But if you'd like a Bible, Lionel will walk around and he'll give you one this morning. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 2. Uh, last week, we asked the question, what is it that makes the gospel good news? That's what the word gospel means, by the way. It just means good news. So why is it news and why is that news good? And we said that the reason for that is because the gospel reveals to us an escape from God's wrath. And that's important because everyone who comes into the family of God needs to realize that from the outside, we all have this common resemblance of a rebel. We all look like rebels. No matter how clean you are on the outside, that's, that's kind of, that's what you come looking like. That's what I come looking like. This week, as we get this shared expectation, the big question we're asking is, on what basis can we be truly called God's children? On what basis can we truly be called God's children? This is really important. It's, it's not just important if you feel like you're outside the family of God, you need to know that. But if you feel like you're inside the family of God, you need to know that too. On what basis can you and I be considered his children? And the idea this morning that we're going to be sort of working towards is that God's children are righteous like their father. Put another way, God's expectation is that his people are righteous. Now, 
at this point, if you're like me, you're probably saying, well, well, aren't, aren't we his kids because he loves us? Yes, yes, he loves us. But there will be no one in the family of God who is not righteous. There will be no one in the kingdom of God who is not righteous. And that ought to cause us to sit up a little bit. I encourage you, if you feel that tension there, that's the tension that's driving this whole text. It's to work out how, how on earth is this going to be possible? How is it possible that a righteous God would have unrighteous people in his family? How is it possible, is it even possible, that they could become righteous? Uh, we're going to move through this material today in three, sort of three stages or three phases. Uh, the first phase, we're just going to look at why Judgment Day is good news. It's kind of an overarching sort of theme here. Why is the coming judgment of God actually a part of the gospel? If you're, uh, again, if you're like me, you might have this tendency to say, well, the gospel is, is different than judgment. You know, isn't the gospel that there is no judgment? And we tend to sort of put these things on two separate sides and say they're different. But actually, Paul is going to very careful lengths to make sure that we understand that the gospel actually includes an announcement of the judgment of God. It's part and parcel of it. The next phase we're going to look at is the teaching, which is what is God's judgment like? That's, that's going to be unpacked for us in these verses. And finally, the application of how do we prepare for that? So why is, oops, where did my slides go? There we go. <laughs> it's a great song. I see that maybe that's how I'm getting, I'm getting off track, you know, Jonathan, you get off track, get back to the mercy of God. Okay. Okay. I'm listening. Uh, I'm listening. Let me know when we're back. There we go. All right. Um, <laughs> We got no confidence monitor today, so I'm going off my iPad. My iPad changes. Who did that? Uh, thank you to all the people who helped uh, in the back. I will say, I will say, it is not an easy, not an easy task. So thanks to everyone who's involved in that. So the last thing we're going to look at is how we prepare for that judgment. Right now, would you pray with me as we seek God's help and blessing, Father in heaven? Uh, again, I'm just mindful that I am not. Um, capable and comp competent, Lord, to, to expound these truths sufficiently without, without the work of your spirit. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that he would be our counselor, our comforter, our advocate. We believe that Jesus came, that we would be saved, and we pray that we would know his rescue and his salvation today. Thank you for your word, God, which is true. Help us to latch onto it and cling to it in faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the big picture, the big picture from Paul's story, and I'm just gonna sit down for a moment here, pace myself. Uh, the big picture from Paul's story here is that everyone needs to hear the good news about Jesus. That's what he writes to the Romans. He says, I'm eager to come and I'm eager to tell you the good news. Everybody needs to hear this news. The gospel is good news, and Pastor Eddie sort of explained this. Uh, the gospel is worth hearing because in hearing the gospel, the power of God is actively being unleashed. In the proclamation of the gospel, God's power is going forth. How? How so? Because in the message of the gospel, 
the righteousness of God is being revealed to us in present time, in real time. When we hear the gospel, the righteousness of God is made known to us. You say, how is that powerful? It's powerful because we live in an unrighteous world. We are so used to unrighteousness. We take it for granted. Now, when I say the word righteous, I mean what is proper, what is true, what is just. If you're a builder or you work with builders, you know, there's this thing called being built true to plumb. And it's just, it's perfect. When we talk about righteousness, we're saying God's perfect measure, his perfect standard. In the gospel, God is revealing to us his righteousness. And this righteousness is a revelation of both his salvation and his wrath. Here's some questions that we should ask. We should be asking, if God is angry at our rebellion, what will it look like to make things right? If God is upset with an unrighteous world, what's it going to look like for him to put that straight? Secondly, can everyone expect to receive the same things from God? On the judgment day, is, is, is everything going to be equal? Is everything going to be the same? We should also be asking if God rewards some and punishes others, well then what's the basis for that? And finally, what does all this have to do with Jesus? Here is Paul's logic, the the logic of his argument. In verses 6 to 11, Paul is showing that God judges everyone perfectly. He judges everyone perfectly. This is important. There's nobody who's not going to be judged. And that judgment from God is impartial. It's done without favoritism. It's done with fairness. Take a look at at verses 6 to 11. Paul begins by quoting from the Old Testament. And this is something Jesus quoted as well. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and have, uh, excuse me, and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Everyone will be judged, and that judgment will be fairly. Now, you can read this, and you can say, well, is is Paul saying that, that, that those, the only ones who will have eternal life are those who who do their good works, I thought that we were saved apart from works. As John Stott says in his commentary, what Paul is referring to here is the judgment. The judgment that's going to come. The difference in verses 8 and 9 is what they are seeking. Those who receive eternal life are those who are seeking, follow with me, glory. Where does glory come from? God. There are those who seek honor. Who is truly the one to be honored? God. They are seeking immortality. Who is the one who alone is immortal? God. So the people who are going to receive eternal life are those who have a Godward orientation. The posture of my life is faith. But those who receive the wrath and the distress 
are those who seek what? Themselves. Look at verse 8. Those who are self-seeking. These are people who do not have a God orientation. These are people who have an orientation towards self and to their own desires. This is not a popular narrative today. You go out into the workplace tomorrow, people are going to tell you whatever makes you happy. You do you. You do what you need to do to get by. The world will tell you, seek whatever you want. Seek yourself. As long as it doesn't impinge on me seeking what I want. Then it gets a little dicey. So it's not, in the end, a contrast simply between those who perform well and those who perform don't. The issue is the heart and their orientation. But Paul's logic here is that everyone's going to be judged and it's going to be, it's going to be done perfectly. Next, he says that every, God's going to judge everyone perfectly. The reason is because God's standard is perfection. Look at verses 12 to 16. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's eyes, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Paul says you're, you're going to be judged on whether you're righteous, on whether you're plumb, on whether you are straight, whether to the core, thought, word, deed, action, motive. If, if you are righteous, you will be declared righteous. If you're not, you're not. God's standard is perfection. That's how he's going to judge it. And Paul, as you may recall from last week, in this section, he's, he's anticipating the, the critic or the, the cynic who's, who's got this idea that they're a good person. And this person saying, you know, you Christians, you Gentile Christians in particular, you guys really don't have a part in this. You don't know what good is. We know what good is. We've been given the law. I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and this is going to be very imperfect, but I, I, I hope, <laughs> anyway, this is the best I could come up with. I want you to imagine that God said, look, we're going to take people to heaven on a ferry, and you have to be 20 feet tall to get on the ferry. Now, we ought to be looking around saying, I've never met a human who's 20 feet tall. But I want you to imagine that there's somebody that God gave the instructions and a tape measure to. And that person's walking around the docks with the tape measure and the instructions saying, the instructions say you can't get on the ferry unless you're 20 feet tall. And they have the tape measure in their hand and they're walking around measuring people and they're saying, you're not 20 feet tall. Sorry, you're definitely not 20 feet tall. Paul is saying, just because you're holding the tape measure and because you're holding the instructions doesn't mean you get to go through a different gate. You will either be righteous or you will not be righteous. Because God's standard is perfection. And then he anticipates some objections in verses 17 to 29. He says, 
<laughs> this is true whether or not you have his law and whether or not you've been circumcised. Let's look at verses 17 to 24. No, sorry, before we get there, we did, he just makes a note here. And, and I don't want to skip over this too quickly. Verses 14, 15, and 16. He says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Paul says, the Gentiles are able to look at that, at that bar and say, you know what? I see the bar. I don't have the rule book, but I can tell where the entrance is, and I can see that I'm not tall enough. I can see that I'm not righteous enough. But the Gentiles also can by nature do things required by the law. They're a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Again, I like what Stott says here. He says that, look, whether you grew up in, 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 the, in the Jewish tradition or not, whether you read the, the Torah, the first five books of the law, whether you received those 613 commandments or not, when you see that, Paul said, there's Gentiles who never had that, who, who realized, you know what? You're, you shouldn't kill people. Who realized that, you know, to dishonor your parents is, is, is probably wrong, actually. There's people who realize that personal property matters and it's not, it's not right to go steal something from somebody else. And Stott, in his commentary, does a great job. He says, you know, all of us have kind of this sort of three-part dialogue going on within us. You know, on our hearts, God has imprinted some measure of what ought to be. It's why we feel guilty. Yes, there can be false guilt. We're not talking about false guilt. There's a, there's a guilt of just you've done the wrong thing. And your heart knows what's right and wrong. Your conscience comes along and says, hey, that's not the right thing to do. A little Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> that was a lie. I know it was small. I know no one will ever know. But that was a lie. And then your thoughts come along and say, well, let me tell you why we did that. You know, see, we, we did that because really we're trying to get from A to B. And, and, and if we told the truth in that moment, that's going to be a whole lot more complicated. And we're not going to get there on time. And we're not going to get there whole and intact. And so really this was the best course of action. As you got this sort of three, this sort of three-part inner dialogue going on. Your heart telling you what's right and wrong. Your conscience saying when you've stepped out of bounds or not stepped out of bounds. And your thoughts sitting there saying, you know what? We did the right thing there. Or no, we didn't do the right thing there. Trying to rationalize and justify it all. But verse 16 is the point. It says, this will take place. This judgment will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Listen to what he's saying. The gospel is, and the gospel includes, that the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will come and Jesus Christ will lay bare the secret places of our hearts. Ah!
the secret places, the things you've never told anybody, those secret poisonous, toxic desires that, that you've been sort of nursing and feeding, those vengeful acts, the grudges we harbor, the lusts we cherish, the, the, the pride that, that we can't seem to let go of, all these things in the secret places of the heart. You can be squeaky clean on the outside, but at what, God's not going to just say, well, let's, let's look at the replay of this person's life. He's not just going to run a replay of your life. He's going to open the books and it's going to be an account of our heart. They say, this is the gospel? It's the gospel. <laughs> this is good news. Why? If God's going to put things right, he's going to put everything right. If God's going to dwell with his people, a holy God, a perfect and righteous God, they need to be holy and perfect and righteous. Now, Paul at this point begins to anticipate an objection from the Jew. The Jewish person that... Uh, hello, hello, <laughs> we're already chosen. Paul, you should know this. We've already been picked by God. Remember the whole story, you know? Joseph goes down to Egypt, and then Jacob and the, you know, his 12 sons, and then, and then the Exodus, and God liberates, and he takes us through the wilderness, and he gave us the law. It's a covenant, Paul. Don't you know what a covenant is? It means that we are in relationship with God. He begins to anticipate this objection, verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, and by Jew, he means someone who is a part of the chosen people of God. Now the reason... This was news to me and interesting to me. Uh, how we get the term Jew is a reference to the people who moved back to Israel after the exile. After the exile to Babylon, those who came back, they generally settled in the land of Judah. In the tribe of Judah, where their land was, they generally settled there. And so that's how they came to be associated with that name Jew. So Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, he's got eight things here. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the, guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This is what the Jew's saying. And by the way, you can read their other literature of this time, and they're saying this exact thing. This is how they see themselves. Paul says, if this is true, verse 21, he's going to flip the tables. You then who teach others, don't you teach yourself? <laughs> you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And then he's going to quote scripture to him. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says, you're, you think that you, you have an exception to this because you, you were the first to receive the revelation? Because you received the tablet? Moses gave you the tablets and he gave you the laws? You think that somehow means you don't have to be righteous? That you actually, you can get on the ferry a different way just because you, you got the instruction booklet? 
God's name is blasphemed because of you. There are Christians, and we as Christians can, I include, I've definitely stepped into this before. But as Christians, we can be guilty of doing the same thing. It's just a little bit different. I like what uh, Michael Bird wrote about this. He said, if we wanted to come up with a paraphrase of Roman 2 that speaks against Christian hypocrisy, we could put it as follows. Now, if you call yourself a Christian, if you rely on the Spirit and boast in the triune God, if you claim to be theologically conservative because you attend the right conferences, if you're convinced that you're a guide for lost people, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor of Sunday school children because you went to the finest seminary for preachers, well, then you who preach on Sunday, what do you do between Monday and Saturday? You who preach against legalism, do you burden others with your own list of rules on how to curry God's favor? You who like to jump on the social justice bandwagon, do you pay a pittance of a wage to the immigrants who work your yard because you know they're not legal residents? You who claim to be pro-family, do you invest time and energy in your spouse and children? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you watch internet porn and hotels on business trips? You who tell us to tithe till it hurts, do you give to God from your own pocket? You who boast in your denomination, do you hold your denomination to account when it fails to report sex abuse or when it sucks up to politicians you know have a sham faith? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed across the internet because of you. You see, the mistake that the Jews were making is the same mistake we can make. We can do the same thing. Because we've sat under certain teachers, because we belong to certain denominations, because we've been through different experiences, because we've led certain ministries, because we've done X, Y, Z. If we rely on this as a substitute for the requirement that we're righteous, we're deluding ourselves. Or as James would say, faith without works is dead. So whether or not you have the law, Paul says to the Jew, it doesn't matter. You still need to be righteous. You also need to be righteous whether or not you're circumcised. And here, the shift is from the revelation received to, to the participation in the covenant rite or the participation in the covenant ceremony. So circumcision is a, a, a practice and it's instituted by God for the males who are a part of his chosen people. This begins with Abraham, when God makes a promise to Abraham that he's gonna bless the nations through them. The sign that Abraham is to bear literally on his body that he belongs to God is to be circumcised. And this is passed down all the way through, even to Jesus, who on the eighth day is brought to be circumcised. And so the Jews are known for this. And you need to remember, people in these days, they, they, they bathe in public bathhouses. <laughs> you, you, you would know who was a Jew and who wasn't as a regular part of society. 
So Paul anticipates that the Jews saying, well, yeah, but I'm circumcised. I've been through the ritual. I've been through the rite. I bear the mark that I belong. Listen to what Paul says, 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. Notice he's not going to write it off and say it's meaningless. But if you try to say that you've been circumcised, therefore I can break the law, you become as though you've not been circumcised. It's, it's, it's a radical statement from Paul. He says, you can go through the ceremony, and, and if you don't actually put into practice the things that, you, that, that, that go with being a part of the people of God, you might as well have not gone through the ceremony. Can I say the same is true for baptism? You can go through baptism, but if you don't, if you don't live as though you have died with Christ and your flesh is, is dead with Christ, and if you're not walking in the spirit who, who has raised you with Christ, you haven't done much more than take a bath in front of a lot of people. Paul says, verse 26, so then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you. What a statement. Paul says there's uncircumcised Gentiles who are going to be the condemnation on these circumcised Jews. You want little wonder why Paul gets run out of town everywhere he goes, right? Particularly when he starts in the synagogues with this message. The one, who obeys is not circum the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. Now Paul's going to move in verse 28 to 29. He's going to try to land and settle the issue. And what he does is he does it by shifting from the external to the internal to get to the heart of what's going on. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Folks, this is not just Paul's idea. God said this in Deuteronomy. He would say to his people in Deuteronomy, circumcise your hearts. He says it in Ezekiel. So this isn't just Paul going off on some tangent because he's a radical who's found this new idea in Jesus. He's putting together the thread that's been consistent throughout, which is God has always chosen his people by not merely the physical or the outward expression, but by something that is internal, by faith, faithfulness. Verse 29, no, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is not, excuse me, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Why would Paul make that comment? The name Judah means praise. And so the idea of, he's talking to a Jew. You call yourself a Jew? You call yourself the praised one? Paul says, this is the praised one whose praise doesn't come from other people's recognition, but it comes from God. Why? Because they've been marked, not simply by in their outward nature, in their physical form, but they've been marked in the heart. This can only be done by the Spirit of God. 
Now by this point in time, I hope you feel morally and spiritually naked. Because that's the truth. Just to recap, what do we know about God's judgment? What do we need to know? We need to know he's going to judge all of us, not just the outsiders. We need to know he'll judge us fairly by the same standard. We'll know that that standard is a standard of righteousness. We need to know he's going to weigh our actions, not just our beliefs. He will weigh our actions. This is a consistent theme through the New Testament. It's part of the gospel. We will be judged for what is done in the body. The judgment will uncover the secrets of our hearts and ultimately... God's judgment will reward with life or it will repay with death. This is where it is all going, folks. I'm saying this to you, not like the flight attendant who's reading you the information card, which says, in case of emergency, in case of emergency, the oxygen vents will drop down. In case of emergency, you may need to use your seat as a flotation device. No. Paul is saying this, and I, by God's grace, am repeating this to you, like the person who said on the Titanic, we've struck an iceberg. It's only a matter of time. Finally, application. This wants to fight me today. I don't know why. Can you go to the next slide? Oh, there we go. It's my screen now. First of all, um, how do we prepare? Pardon me, I have to turn around. Stop hiding and drop your fig leaves. <laughs> Not literally, but it's okay. You can be clothed. We don't need it, right? But, but what, what do we mean, right? In the garden, we do the same thing. We do the same thing that our first parents did, right? We sin against God. We know we're, we're, we're convicted that in our hearts we've done the wrong thing. We have this guilt, and our response to the guilt is to hide and to cover up. So what did our first parents do? They ran and they hid. And then when they were confronted, they took some things from God's creation, and they covered themselves up, the things that they were ashamed of. We do the same thing. So how do you prepare? You prepare for judgment day by, by not hiding. Life is not a game of chase where God is trying to look for you and you're trying to get away from him. If that's what life has become for you, stop. Come out with your hands up. Drop your fig leaves, drop any other pretentious thing that you might rely on as some sort of cover-up to, to, to try to hide your guilt or to try to hide your shame with God. You just got to come clean. And the next thing you do is you make peace with Jesus on the way. Jesus would tell this in a parable. I don't have time to pull it out right now. But effectively, he says... If you're on your way to the magistrate with your adversary, make peace on the way so that by the time you get there, the judge doesn't, isn't going to pass a sentence down on you. Jesus is saying is, 
you're going to have to appear before me. Make peace with God now. Do it now before you have to stand alone before your creator. Now, this is really important. When we say make peace with God, and I heard this in a Tim Keller sermon. It's on Word of the Week. You can go to E! News. It's a great message. It really, it really lands this, this whole idea a little better than I have. But in it, he, he makes a great point. He says, you know, to have peace with God, it's not just about you making peace with him. He has to make peace with you. We often think God's this just Santa Claus who just, you know, this poor sad sap who just wants people to love him and like him. And he'll bend over backwards. He's just saying, love me, love me, love me. I don't care. No. You need to make peace with God and he has to make peace with you. Thank God for the cross. Because on the cross, we're going to get here in two weeks. On the cross, God satisfied his wrath. And Jesus now offers us his righteousness to clothe us. And once we are clothed in his righteousness, we can be indwelt by his spirit, and indwelt by his spirit, we begin to undergo a renovation. All right, thirdly, preparing for judgment, apply God's standard the right way. You know, Do we really have any right to look down on sinners when we are sinners ourselves? Do we really have right to claim some sort of superiority? Do we have a right to come with arrogance? I mean, if anyone had the right to come with superiority, it's God. Because he is superior and he is perfect. And how did he come? He came to our level. Without getting into our mess without becoming sinful. He came to our level. He served us and he loved us. And that's why he fulfilled the righteousness that we required. So let's use God's standard the right way. Finally, check that the story your life is telling fits with the end of God's story. Paul in writing to the Corinthians would say, he would say, you, you are a letter. You're my letter that God is writing. Paul is saying that, that, that you Corinthians, the gospel is telling its story through your lives. And so I ask you, Windsor District Baptist Church, what message is your life sending? What message does it send? Does it send a message that, you know what? If you're good enough and you're smart enough, you can be different. If you're clever enough, if you, if you do enough, if you perform well enough, that, that you can somehow get the easy road. Does your life send the message that, you know what? There is security to be found here in the things of earth. And really, we all need to scramble for that. 
Does your life send a message that there is a judgment that is coming, that there's a day that's been appointed when everyone needs to give an account, and that you're actually in the process of readying yourself for that day? What message does your life send? What story is your life telling? Because if we are the people of Christ, the story that our life is saying, it better fit with the end of God's story. Because his story is determinative. Finally, the bottom line, if you're asleep, you can wake up now. There we go. Bottom line, God's chosen people are righteous to the core. They're righteous to the core. If we would be his people, we must become righteous. Jesus came not just to be our righteousness, but also to make us righteous. This is transformation. And this is what the Spirit of God is doing. As Paul would write to the church in Galatia, he would say, I am in labor pains as I'm waiting for you believers in Galatia for Christ to be formed in you. For this transformation to take place. Are we ready to change WDBC? Are we ready to be the righteous people of God? Are we ready to give up control? Are we ready to let him, let him have his way in us and to write his story? Would you bow your heads? Father, I confess that I've spent much of my life trying to write my own story and to be the architect of my own life. Lord, I put the pen down. I put the drafting utensils aside. And Father, collectively as a church, we need to do that. Father, I pray that your justice and mercy would overflow from believers in this church. That the world would see what a loving and good and righteous God you are. That the change would be evident, not, not so that we could somehow rely on the things that we've done, but that the change would be evident because it would remind us of how good you are. Father, may we not make the mistake of Israel who used your law and said, I can do that. But may we instead just be humbled and come out from our hiding places. Lord, you know where we're hiding. You know the secrets. Lord, we unlock the cabinet this morning. We give you the key. We say, pull it out, rifle through the drawers. Make us clean. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite um, the worship band to come up. These things are confronting. And if you're unsettled, that's not a bad thing because in your unsettledness, that's your heart saying, I need to be free of this guilt. And it's only in Jesus that you can be free. And you will never, once you, once you have tasted that the Lord is good, you will never walk away. You might wander, 
but you will always go back. So if that's you this morning, don't push that aside. Listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to your hearts. Would you stand as we proclaim the greatness and the majesty of our God?